0: Welcome, everybody, and happy Thanksgiving to you. I know we've got a number of guests and visitors here from out of town. It's our honor to host you and have you this morning. Uh, we're beginning a new teaching series for the month of December at our Christmas season called Messiah Songs, Messiah Songs, the Psalms of Christmas, and so we're looking at a handful and selection of psalms that point us to what Christmas is and what Christmas means, and our psalm this morning, the first psalm in the series, is Psalm 3, so let's look at it together. This is our scripture reading for the day, it's going to be on the screen in front of you, or of course you can follow along in your Bible here it is Psalm 3 verses 1 through 8 Lord how many are my foes how many rise up against me many are saying of me God will not deliver him but you Lord are a shield around me my glory the one who lifts my head high I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain I lie down and sleep I wake again because the Lord sustains me I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. That's God's word this morning. So again, as we've said, we're looking at a handful of psalms this morning, looking at the ways in which the psalms actually point us to Christmas. You say, how is that? Well, Jesus himself actually tells us in Luke 24, when he says that all the Bible, and actually and incredibly, specifically the psalms are about him. The psalms, then, are more than just a handbook of prayer for God's people, although, of course, it is that. It's more than just a handbook for prayer. The Psalms are literally the songs of a Savior and are for us a way of seeing Christmas in a new light. Because after all, let's ask, what's Christmas all about? hmm? Christmas is about the birth of Jesus. The Bible tells us he came to be something in particular, the prince of what? The prince of peace. Yeah, he came to bring peace, although in ways no one could have foreseen or expected and specifically these first two weeks we're looking in the psalms at how we can have an unexpected kind of peace in the difficult places of our emotional lives Of our emotional lives you say well how can this be well put it like this the psalms can bring us an unexpected kind of peace because they are unexpectedly offensive yeah, the Psalms can bring us an unexpected piece because they are unexpectedly offensive. And here's how. The Psalms in general, in Psalm 3 in particular, provide us with a unique and countercultural way of handling and processing our emotions. That's different than anything from any other part of our culture. Conservative culture, on one hand, says when it comes to our emotions, hey, you know what? Stuff them down. Don't acknowledge them. You know what? People should just get past how they're feeling right just stuff it down move on get over it already you know conservative culture says in general you know if you're a man emotions are just something to be suppressed or you know, they're feminine to express or makes you weak to show them or it says if you're a woman hey they're just something to be conquered in the end to get over on the other hand though modern liberal culture makes the expression of emotions into sort of a badge of honor It says, don't bottle it up, but rather let it all hang out, right? Modern liberal culture says this, to express yourself, go on Oprah, right? Jump on a couch. Tell everybody how you're feeling. Don't bottle it up. You know, just go on Facebook and dump everything you're feeling. Rant on Twitter. When you do that, you're just keeping it real. Just keeping it real, right? Vent your emotions to anyone and everyone who will listen. And now here's the problem. Almost all of us fall into one category or the other as a way of handling our emotions. And for those of you who are married in here, frequently you'll be married to someone of the opposite sort of tendency. Now, there's a great scene from an old movie called The African Queen that shows the collision of these two emotional worldviews. And this scene has two characters. There's the prim and proper Bible-reading character named Rose, played by Catherine Hepburn. There's the drunken, coarse riverboat captain named Charlie, played by Humphrey Bogart. And in the scene, Charlie is just haranguing Rose about her consistent and persistent morality. And he says to her this. Charlie says... A man takes a drop too much once in a while. It's only human nature. Of course, Rose comes back with one of the great all-time Hollywood put-downs. She says, Nature, Mr. Allnut, is what we are put in this world to rise above rides above now one view of course sees the self as something to be absolutely expressed right that's the first view no matter what happens no matter how you feel it's just hey it's human nature express that or the other most the other though sees human nature and emotions as something to be suppressed Right? To be put down. But the Bible's approach to the emotional life is neither. The Psalms teach us neither to bottle up our emotions on one hand within ourselves or just to throw up and vomit our emotions on someone else. But rather, hear this, to pour out our emotions in prayer to God. Pour out our emotions in prayer to God. So this morning we're going to be looking specifically at how King David, of all people, processes In prayer, perhaps, the most universal and primal emotion that human beings experience is this. It's the feeling of shame. The feeling of shame. You say, Morgan, that's not me. You know, I don't feel ashamed. I walk around with shame. I didn't come here this morning feeling ashamed. All right, let me just say, not so fast. I'm coming for you. All right, here we go. Let's look at three concepts from the passage. We're going to be looking at number one this morning human shame, number two, David's shield, and finally, Abraham's solution, Abraham's solution. So let's begin here, number one, human shame and ask, what's happening here in the psalm? David, of course, begins by saying in verse one, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Now, why would he say that? Well, let's look at the superscription above the psalm. You saw it there in the scripture reading. It says it's a psalm of David when he fled from his son who? Absalom, yeah. So why is David... "...on the run from his son Absalom." Well, when we go back and over to 2 Samuel 15, we see that Absalom here is now leading a coup against his father by sitting out at the city gates. And because his father's leadership is failing, he's receiving complaints against his father. And rather than work in unity for the betterment of the city and for his nation, he steals the hearts of the people by promising them it would be better if he were in charge. He had himself declared king, gathered the army to himself. David hears of this. He flees the palace and runs for his life and as David was on the run from his own son he heads out into the desert with his enemies at his back and we read this over in 2nd Samuel 15 it says but David continued up the Mount of Olives weeping as he went his head was covered and he was barefoot all the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up and many commentators believe it was this place, it was the Mount of Olives. This is where David composed Psalm 3. And so we should ask him, what's this manly warrior doing with his emotional life? Hmm? Is he stuffing it down? Not at all, no. He's weeping, and he's weeping so loudly that this little group with him is unable to do anything else except join in and weep as well. David is literally unable to talk, can barely walk as he stumbles up the Mount of Olives because of what is happening to him on the inside so let's ask what was happening to him on the inside one word it was shame david is feeling ashamed and you know this because we read it when he verbalized it there in in the previous verse in verse two when he said this many are saying of me god will not deliver him so what's this mean means this, God had made a promise to David when David was anointed king. And God said to David, David, someone from your family, from your line, from your house will always be on the throne of Israel. Someone from your house will always rule the nation. Kings will come forth from you. God said, I promise you, David, this will happen. And when did that happen? Well, it was when God had taken the kingdom away from David's predecessor, King Saul. For Saul's persistent, consistent, impatience, misrepresentation of God, failure, sin, and so forth. The kingdom, can you see, had been taken away from Saul and given to David. But then, what had David done? David had lied, hadn't he? He had sinned. David had committed adultery with another man's wife and gotten her pregnant and had covered up, arranged for the man to be murdered. As a result, his personal life, we read in the, in the Kings and Chronicles, began to spiral out of control. His children were unmanageable. He, they committed incest. They slept with their father's concubines. And in general, his whole household had become so grievous and odious to his nation. It was such an embarrassment to them that in the end, the very people who were willing to sing his praises in the streets as he conquered Goliath were now calling for an end to his rule and an overthrow of his reign by following his undisciplined but charismatic son Absalom. What were the people saying? Oh, David heard it, right? Many are saying, God will not deliver him. Why? Just like God had taken the kingdom away from Saul. Now David is fearing the same thing's going to happen to me. God's going to take the kingdom away from me. What was David's fear? Oh, he's verbalizing it here. That his own failings were costing him everything. His kingdom, his friendships, his family, and his God. And it sure looked like it, didn't it? Because where was he? He wasn't in the palace. He's on the run. He's in the desert. He's barefoot, head covered, weeping as he goes. What's he feeling? Shame complete and utter shame so let's pause now and ask what is shame how do we define it biblically well shame in the bible comes from a hebrew word in genesis 2 it means this shame means to fail expectations we see the very first people god created back in genesis 2 before they sinned before they fell from grace when they saw each other they stood in front of one another and they said this we're naked and unashamed isn't that interesting they didn't say we're naked and feel no guilt or we're naked and feel no sense of humiliation. No, they say that they could stand in front of one another and say, I meet your expectations fully. You meet my expectations fully. We are pleasing to the uttermost and to the depths of our heart and soul before almighty God and before one another. See, no sense of failing expectations in any way But what happened? Oh, we know the story. They ate the fruit. They fell. They disobeyed God. And now shame entered the world. And shame, therefore, is this. It's the cosmic and fundamental feeling of unworthiness and failure that haunts all people. Shame is something that's basically, the Bible says, baked and hardwired into our spiritual DNA. Shame, though, is different than guilt. Actually, guilt is sort of healthy. Guilt says, I have done wrong to others. Which you probably ought to fix, right? Shame is different, on the other hand, from humiliation, which is that others have done wrong to me. But shame is this I am wrong. I'm wrong. There's something wrong with me. And there are three main ways or three symptoms of sorts that shame is expressed. And I want to look at these briefly in turn today three sort of symptoms of shame. The first is something we'll call anxiety anxiety now david gives voice to this over in verse five when he says this i will lie down and sleep for the lord sustains me well what's he saying he's saying up to now he hasn't been able to sleep right he's been an insomniac he couldn't rest he couldn't sleep because of the torment in his mind now this isn't just fear he's talking about no this is what soren kierkegaard called anxiety which is different than fear fear is this fear is you walking across the highway a car speeds down, I-35 at you at 75 miles an hour, and fear moves you to get out of the way and safely onto the side of the road. Fear is focused, fear is productive, it promotes activity and action. It's your autonomic nervous system kicking in to help you preserve something that ought to be preserved. Perhaps your child's life, falling backwards in a chair, you didn't know you could move so fast, right, even with a bum knee and a bad ankle, but yet you're moving fast to save your child. Uh, fear prompts you to save you and preserve your own life. But anxiety is this. Anxiety is the dread. The dread that something bad is just around the corner. It's diffused. It's nonspecific. It's a debilitating force that can leave you even unable to sleep. Why? Well, because fear allows your autonomic nervous system to kick in temporarily, act, and then shut down. But anxiety serves as a stimulant for it, keeping it on all the time, all the time, always on edge, always run ragged, unable even to sleep. And where does it come from? Well, even secular researchers now acknowledge what the Bible says is the main issue. It's a loss of the sense of self. Who am I? Why am I here? Am I loved? Do I deserve to be loved? I don't deserve to be loved. I deserve bad things to happen to me. I've failed people's expectations. Something bad's going to happen. I just know it, right? Is your marriage going to make it? No, we're not going to make it. Are we going to get that bonus? No, we're not going to get the bonus. Are the kids going to go to that school? No, they won't. See, anxiety, anxiety is a shame-based way of beating life to the punch. It's a shame-based way of beating life to the punch. Your guards up all the time. And anxiety is what David's feeling here. What did he lost? His sense of self. Why? He lost everything, right? Who was he anymore with everything gone? Secondly, there's what we'll call performance orientation. Performance orientation, which is an unhealthy need for perfection, is not the same as simply striving for excellence or healthy growth or healthy achievement. Performance orientation is a shame based approach to life, which says if I do things perfectly, if I look good enough, if I do well enough, I can minimize pain struggle and discomfort in my life and the only reason or way i'm feeling pain is because i've failed to meet expectations in some areas i failed to be perfect now perfectionism can you see is shame on steroids it's shame on steroids we think there's something wrong with me but if i can just get it perfect if i can just achieve or conquer the odds or do whatever i feel better about who i am but here's the problem Maybe you've seen it coming. Because perfection doesn't exist. Performance orientation actually sets us up for another debilitating cycle of shame and failure. Because you'll never meet this standard. Performance, performance, orientation, or why professional athletes take what? Performance, enhancing drugs, right? It's why students cheat on tests. Why journalists plagiarize. It's the fear of feeling their shame, of not meeting and failing. Expectations. Performance orientation and it exists it can manifest in a hundred ways. That's why some men, even successful and attractive men, turn to pornography. See, it's not just lust, it's a means of exerting control over their sex life because the woman on the computer she'll never reject him will she no she'll never say she wasn't satisfied she'll never tell him he's not enough like every other thing in his life it's why some women on the other hand on the other hand have to keep their house spotless not just in case visitors drop by but in case visitors drop by and they don't meet the expectations of the visitor. And if there's one area of shame that God's worked in me incrementally over the years to sort of break through and handle, it's this one. Because, you know, sometimes the highest achievers aren't doing it from a wholehearted place. A place in their heart which says, God, I want to give you glory. But no, it's a fear of failing others. Oh, well, if I don't do this, if I don't call them back, if I don't go to the meeting, if I don't make it to the hospital to visit them, if I don't return those last 40 emails and texts, if I don't make this sermon great, they won't love me. They'll leave me. And then who am I? See, what is that? Oh, it's the same thing Adam and Eve did. It's fig leaves. It's covering. Let me just say this. The shame you feel with respect to your behavior isn't just because of your behavior. No, shame is what drives your behavior in the first place. Shame is what gives rise to the failure. Excuse me, what gives rise to your behavior. So that's number two. Number three, though, is what we'll call disconnection disconnection because we're made church in the image of a triune god we're so hardwired to connect with other people that the lack of feeling connection with others is devastating when we don't feel connected especially to those closest to us our parents in specific we can feel ashamed like we've failed someone's expectation of us someone's relational expectation we feel like there's something wrong with us And when we feel this way, oh, when we feel cut off, isolated, instead of pressing through and working through it to a place of healthy relational and emotional connection, many of us can turn to a tactic that psychologist Dr. Brene Brown from the University of Houston calls numbing. And numbing looks like this. It's a great quote from her book called Daring Greatly. She said, if you're wondering if numbing refers to doing illegal drugs or having a few glasses of wine after work, the answer is yes. I'm going to argue that we need to examine the idea of taking the edge off. And that means considering the glasses of wine we drink while we're cooking dinner, eating dinner, and cleaning up after dinner. Our 60-hour work weeks, the sugar, the fantasy football, the prescription pills, and the four shots of espresso that we drink in order to clear the fog from the wine and advil pm i'm talking about you and me and the stuff we do every day for me it wasn't just the dance halls cold beer and marlboro lights of my youth that got out of hand it was banana bread chips and queso email work staying busy incessant worry planning perfectionism and anything else that could dull those agonizing and anxiety-fueled feelings of vulnerability That's what she's saying Well, she felt disconnected from others. Therefore, she overworked. She felt disconnected. Therefore, she overate. She overfed herself. She overdrank. What are all those things? Shame, right? Covering shame. She's numbing the pain of her shame. And here in 2 Samuel 15 and Psalm 3, David is feeling all of this. He's feeling anxiety, right? The fear of what's going to happen to him. His performance as a king has been an utter failure. And now he's disconnected from everyone he holds dear And yet, oh, and yet, David found a way through the shame, church. He did it. He didn't stay in this place. He broke through. How? Let's look at it. Number two, David's shield. David's shield. This next verse is beautiful. It's the turning point in the psalm, which quite possibly, again, David is composing as he's crying, as he's weeping, walking up the Mount of Olives. And he finds a way through. And he says perhaps the most important word in the whole psalm. In verse three, he says, but, oh, but you. Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. See, David doesn't just bottle up how he feels. He doesn't just say, oh, you've got to get past this. Nor does he emotionally just vent on others. No, he verbalizes his pain. Verbalizes his shame, which, by the way, withers the power of shame in your life. If you just verbalize it, oh, the power begins to diminish. Shame thrives in the dark. It thrives in the corners. It thrives in the shadows. Put it to words. See, verbalize it. Its power begins to be cut off. David pours out his soul to God, and he breaks free. How? Oh, well, did you notice what he calls God here in verse three? There's three things he says in succession, which in Hebrew poetry means one thing expressed in three different ways. And let's look at them in reverse now. So who was God ultimately to David first? Or lastly, David says, you're the lifter of my head. You see, in a shame-based, hierarchical shame and honor culture, an inferior would never raise his eyes to meet the gaze of a superior office or a superior person. His head would always be bowed and groveling and lowered in the presence of someone of greater power or status. But David says here, Oh, God! You're my head lifter. In other words, you're the one who lifts my gaze to meet yours. You're the one who breaks the shame of my position and allows me to see you our eyes meet. In a way, David's saying, God, I see you're now allowing us to have a kind of relationship that's put us on equal footing. We're almost equals here. This is astonishing. And unheard of. How could God be this ultimately to David? Well, it's because of the second thing David saw God as. David says, God, you're not just my headlifter. You're my glory. You're my glory. What's glory? The Hebrew word means weight. It means heaviness. It means substance. David is saying, God, you... And what you say give my life weight. What you say about me anchors my soul, not what anything else, anybody else says. And how does both of these things, how do both of these things show up in David's life? How does David feel these things? Oh, he says this. It feels like this. A shield. A shield. David says, God, you're my shield. You're my protection you're something no anxiety can penetrate you're something no performance can come up and take away david says god you're my shield oh you're the one who is protecting me you're the one that anchors me now i'm not going to allow my feelings of disconnection my numbing my anxiety my performance orientation to be the things i use as a shield to keep me from dealing with my heart and allowing others to get close no god you're my shield you're my shield and let me just say this church we have no categories for this today as a culture we just don't when our culture looks to overcome shame when most of us look to arrive in the same place david did we revert to one of two strategies we have on one hand what i'll call plato's strategy the philosopher on the other hand miley cyrus's strategy there's the miley cyrus plan On one hand, Plato, the philosopher, his strategy for dealing with a person's sense of self-worth went like this. A person's sense of self ought to come from what others tell them. In The Republic, if you've read it, Plato said in order to raise the best kind of citizens, children ought to be forcibly removed from their parents at birth, told who they are, groomed and shaped, and then inject them back into society. Now, whoa, we object to that today. That sounds way too non-individualistic. How can I be me being me? You know, in Plato's strategy... No, we don't like that. We like the Miley Cyrus approach. When she said this quote a couple years ago, your image isn't how much you're worth. Your worth isn't based on that. Your worth is based on how you feel about yourself. Now, when it comes to the question again of dealing with shame of who we are, Plato says, look outward To what others say to you, Miley Cyrus says, don't listen to others, don't listen to the crowd, listen to yourself, right? Don't look without, look within. Our modern culture today says, you may feel like there's something wrong with you, but you've just got to accept yourself. That's how you get over shame. Just know you're fine just the way you are. Now, let me ask you, do you think that approach would work for David here in Psalm 3, 2 Samuel 15? Do you think that approach would help an adulterer and a murderer for someone who's a failure now as a leader, who has let his nation down, for someone who was a failure as a father and whose family was fragmented, for someone who has let down every single person that he knew? Hmm? Do you think what would have helped David would just be to look in the mirror and say, you know what, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. I don't think so. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all. But you'll notice he does in the end break through to a place of security, tenacity, boldness, and poise. But you'll notice there's no reference to any kind of performance of his own. He doesn't say, I'm going to look to myself and my own ability to overcome shame. Nor does he say, I'm going to look to my performance as a person. No, what does he do? He doesn't look out. He doesn't look within. He does this. David calls out. He calls out, he calls out, and he looks to one thing in particular. The church, of you, if I, if we, will see this and embrace this this morning, can set us free from shame and revolutionize how we live. And I don't use that word lightly. So what did David see? Number three, finally, what I hope you'll see this morning, Abraham's solution. So what did David call out to? Not to others' thoughts toward him, nor to his own thoughts toward himself. He did this. Verse 4, he says, I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain see david says god is sending me an answer oh the email is on the way from on high from god's holy man. i'm getting an answer i'm getting a reply what does this mean well is david just referring to the place on mount zion where the tabernacle was where they sacrificed animals and sin was atoned for yes but that's not quite it He's not just saying, oh, I see my sins are forgiven in a general sense. There's something else that's going on here because commentators have noted that David's language here in Psalm 3 is surprisingly similar to the language used all the way back in Genesis 15 when a man named Abraham heard them spoken to him by God himself because God said to Abraham all the way back centuries before in Genesis 15, he said this, what? Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your what? Shield. I am your very great reward. You see the similarity there? Yeah. Why is that? Well, because Abraham also felt the deepest sense of shame possible in his culture. How? Well, he was childless. He had no heir in that culture. He had no son to pass on his name, his wealth, his family line, and that was humiliating. That was shameful and heir was everything. That's what someone lived for was to pass on their family line, wealth, status, and name to their air. You say, "Oh, that was a primitive culture and people, thank goodness we're past all that stuff today." Hmm. Really? Oh, you know this, every culture has a means of throwing fuel on the fire of the cosmic sense of shame that we all come in with. David didn't meet his people's expectations as a leader. Abraham didn't meet his culture's expectations of him as a father. Today it's something different. We're all just too skinny or too fat or too dumb or too hairy or too short or too tall or too liberal or too conservative or having too much sex or not enough sex or, you know, we don't have enough money, or we haven't gotten a promotion, or we've gotten fired, or there's something that makes us all feel shameful, right? And Abraham felt worthless for not having a son, just like you feel worthless when your spouse turns you down again when your child acts out doesn't get the grade and make the team or when your boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with you but god says in the middle of that kind of heart i'm your shield i'm your very great reward don't be afraid you know god's word struck abraham's heart just like they strike your heart today has stunned silence doesn't do much for me god god spoke this word to abraham and do you know what abraham said in response verse two Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Since I remained childless, God had given him his word. But it wasn't enough for Abraham's heart. His shame ran too deep. And so God made a promise to him. He said, all right, son, I'll answer your prayer. I'll give you a son, and I won't stop there. I'll give you land. And one day your whole family will come to inherit it. And everyone will see it. And your shame will be taken away but abraham he still pressed god further he kept going on and asked him again oh sovereign lord how can i know that i will gain possession of it in other words abraham was asking for proof that god loved him and would take away his shame so what did god do next he said all right you want proof son bring me some animals Let's make a sacrifice. And Abraham did it because he thought he knew what was coming next, but he had no idea. He knew God was about to make a covenant with him, but he had no idea what was about to transpire. You see, in that day, in an oral culture, not a written culture like ours, the way to to make the the most permanent kind of heartfelt commitment was to cut up and pass between the pieces of an animal that had been sacrificed as a way of acting out this one thought and it was this what you're acting out was this if i fail to keep the terms of the covenant if i fail to meet your expectations may i be like these animals if i fail to keep my promise may i be cut off may i be cut off may i be put to death and so abraham thinks he knows exactly what's going on here that god's going to enter into this strange cultural practice and make a covenant with him and he did oh but then god flipped the script on abraham and the two things Abraham saw next would have blown his mind. First, what Abraham saw. He saw this. What would have just blown his mind was this. Number one, who passed between the pieces? Verse 17 said this. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. See, Abraham sees uh smoking fire pot and a blazing torch in other words he's seeing a pillar of cloud and a blazing fire these are the same words used to describe what came down on mount sinai in moses day and what led the children of israel in the desert see what was appearing here were the very tokens of god's direct presence on the planet in this moment god appears he holds his form and he passes between the pieces. You say, why was this stunning? Oh, because in this type of covenant between a king and a subject, it was common for the subject to go through, but not for the king. Many times the kings did not. Why? Because the kings held all the power. And by forcing the vassal, forcing the subject to go through, the lesser party then would take on and have to pay. And swear to the terms of failing to meet the conditions of the covenant. But that's not what happens here. You see, God himself, the ultimate king, the ultimate authority, he passes through the pieces and he swears to bless Abraham. And what does this mean? It means this. God is saying, Abraham, if I don't bless you, if I don't keep my promise to you, may I be torn. May I be cut up. May I be killed. May my immortal self become mortal. May I become human. May I be put to death. That's not the only thing that stunned Abraham. That's not the only thing he saw. The second thing he saw that would have blown his mind was number two. Was who didn't pass between the pieces. Look at verse 18. It said, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. See, after God goes through, the covenant is made. It's signed, sealed, delivered. It's Abraham's. But how can that be? It takes two parties to ratify a covenant, right? One party has gone through, though not two. So what about the other? What would have blown Abraham's mind was not just that God went through the pieces, but that Abraham didn't have to go through. See, God doesn't call him. God doesn't stand him up and say, Abraham, I've done my part. Now you do your part. Abraham doesn't go through it all. And yet the covenant is signed, sealed, and only God has gone through. What does this mean? It means God is saying to Abraham, I will pay the penalty if I fail to keep the terms of the covenant. And I will pay the penalty if you fail to keep the terms of the covenant. Abraham, I swear to keep my part even if it kills me. And I swear to keep your part even if it kills me. You ask, how could that be? Because of this. Because centuries later, God fulfilled this terrible oath of grace on another holy mountain, on another holy hill, on a hill named Calvary, on a cross when Jesus of Nazareth died. What do you have? Oh, darkness falling again. The fire of God's holiness coming and passing between the pieces of his own son. Jesus, Isaiah 53 said, was cut off from the land of the living. And he he himself cried, Oh my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer... So that God could fulfill his promise to Abraham, then David, later, and us Davids and Abrahams today. He did it so that when you ask, oh sovereign Lord, how can I know that I have met your expectations of me? He can say, oh my child, you haven't and you never could. You never could. He did it so that when you say, oh God, I'm not enough. He can say, oh my child, you never will be apart from me. You never will be apart from me. He did it so that he can say to you, look, look, look at what I've done for you. There's no lengths to which I haven't gone to redeem you. When I said I loved you, I meant it. Look, look at what I've done in Jesus. Look and know you satisfy my heart fully to the uttermost. You can be naked and unashamed before me. Call on my name. I am the God who passed between the pieces. See, that's what David did here in Psalm 3. He's calling out to the Lord, who answered him from his holy mountain, the mountain of the covenant. He saw the answer. And oh, church, this morning, how much more can we see the answer today in the person of Jesus? So let's ask now, what can you do with all this? How can you apply it? Simple, one way. You can be real. Are you real with God? and others and therefore become real to yourself you see vulnerability church vulnerability breaks the power of the shame in your life and jesus spread his arms he became naked took on our shame on the cross so that now we can be vulnerable with god and others and become a real wholehearted person what does that look like There's a great passage from the children's classic book called The Velveteen Rabbit that shows us actually what this process kind of looks like. It's a great it's a great quote. It goes like this it says, Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with it, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful, when you are real, you don't mind being heard. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? Oh, it doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except the people who don't understand. It's beautiful. Will you be real with God and with others this morning? See, being vulnerable with Him and others breaks the power of shame over and over, bit by bit, and reclaims your heart. It leaves you living from a whole-hearted place. Do you want that? Oh, it's yours in the gospel. Let's pray as we close. Oh Lord, we come this morning. Lord, seeing how truly great you are. Lord, I just it's amazing to me to think of all the worldviews, faith systems. Lord, that you come to deal with the very thing that's at the root of all our behavior and sin, the sense of shame and disconnection. Lord, that you've come to undo what, what only you could do. Lord, to heal us, to make us whole, wholehearted. And Lord, I'm praying for us this morning that we would now, well, we would be open. We'd be able to be naked and unashamed before you and others. We'd be able to know that you, in Jesus, have taken away our shame. Would you minister to our hearts now? If you're here this morning and you know what, you struggle with one of these perhaps symptoms of shame, of anxiety, of just the, the fear of something bad happening to you all the time, you can't sleep, you can't rest, it's just going and going and going. Would you raise your hand? I want to pray for you this morning. Yeah. The Bible says that a heart at peace gives life to the bones. Before I pray, I just want to challenge you, impress you a bit to find your peace in God heart of peace gives life to the bones. Not a heart at work, not a heart of performance. It's a heart of peace. Lord, I'm praying for these here. Lord, as, as they raise their hands, Lord, they're dealing with anxiety, Lord, the fear beneath the fear. Lord, I pray that you would meet them, Lord, as they're here. and they, Lord, Some of them can't even sleep. There's a fear every night as they lay their head on the pillow. They won't be able to fall asleep. There's a torment and a wrestling and a rolling over and over again. Lord, I'm praying that now, in Jesus' name, that you would break that. Lord, I speak peace and rest in every person's life. Break the power of anxiety, break the power of fear. Lord, let sleep come and rest come beautiful rest. Lord, let them find rest for their souls and for their bodies and their minds. Tonight, Lord, I'm praying tonight. In Jesus' name. Secondly, I pray for those here struggling performance orientation. If that's you, you know it's you. I'm looking at you, high achievers, valedictorians of the world. Would you raise your hand? Yeah, I pray for you. Lord, I'm praying Lord, for these, Lord, to look at your gospel over and over again. They would preach the gospel of themselves. Oh, they're loved because of Jesus. They're not loved because of their performance. Oh, God, they're made in your image. They're your child. Well, they can't look at their performance. It'll never be perfect. Never be perfect. Never enough. Oh, but, Lord, you were. Oh, you went between the pieces for them. Lord, let grace and healing and love come peace in their lives in jesus name and number three if you're feeling disconnected here you've been, maybe there's been a rift in your family a relational rift a loved one a spouse your parents and you've been numbing this you've been turning to other things like your phone or your computer internet media substances would you raise your hand this morning i want to pray for you oh lord i'm praying for these to have the courage not to numb not to look down at his screen again not to press the play with the remote again, but Lord, to go to that difficult place. Lord, you're a shame lifter, the lifter of our head. Lord, would you give them courage as they pray their fears, as they pray their pain, as they pray their difficulties? They pray through it. Lord, would you give them courage to reconcile, to connect in Jesus' name? Amen.